Got living writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so pleased today to have Rafe Esquith here with me in the studio. Rafe, thanks for thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, well, it's, well, it's it's lovely to see you, and thanks for picking that uh, Bruce Springsteen song, "The Boss," to kick off the program. Can you tell us why? Well, that I, one? Lo- I love Bruce. That's a song from his great album, "The River." It's called "The Price You Pay." And I think uh, it's a a message I want the children to understand, that we make decisions in our lives, and you pay a price that can be a good price or a bad price, but I want them to think about the price they pay when they map out their lives. And and you think, and the price you pay, you can, is it, um, It is it like a positive? Yeah, that's what I'm like. Or or negative. I -hmm. want the kids to know that every decision they make um, has an effect not just Sadly, today in this fast food society, our kids are often making decisions based on right now. And I want children to know that it's not just right now, that what we do each day might affect us a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. I've been a teacher for 28 years, so I've talked to my students now who are in their 30s who have their own children and have talked to me about, in a good way, the price they paid, where sometimes they made sacrifices, which meant something much better for them years later. And I think that's why I wrote Lighting Their Fires, to try and inspire parents to know that we do pay a price to be a good parent. We do have to sacrifice time. And sometimes we have to swim against the current culture. But it's worth the price when you develop an extraordinary child. And so, you know, before we go any further, Rafe, 
I'm going to fill people in on on what you are you're coming through town. You're actually going to be reading tonight at the the borders in Birmingham on Woodward tonight at seven o'clock. Um, talking about rather your book, lighting their fires. Uh, how parents and teachers can raise extraordinary kids in a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. Um, Rafe Esquith, um has written also other books. Uh, like that, teach like your hair is on fi- as if your hair is on fire, right? Mm-hmm. I, I wrote that three years ago, and it actually was the reason I wrote this new book. Um, when I wrote "Teach Like Your Hair Is on Fire," I thought I was writing a little cookbook for teachers. <laughs> I didn't know it would become an international bestseller. But T, the thing that was interesting was that I received thousands of letters around the world from parents, and what was amazing was whether they were writing me from Moscow, or Rio de Janeiro, or Beijing. You would have thought they were writing from Detroit. It's all the same theme. Parents don't like the world in which their kids are growing up. They don't like the images the kids are being exposed to. And they want their kids to be honorable. They want them to be good people. And they just don't know how to get there. And I've written this this book for parents uh, to hopefully help them have a conversation with their children of what they can be if they make the right decisions. And also to act, it seems to me from from reading it, to act as a support of sorts and give the parents some hope. And Absolutely. not just directions or a cookbook, but actually like a, a, some, some hope. Uh, you know, you make a very good point. People ask where I get my motivation to work so hard. It's from the students themselves. Um, children and parents, it's a two-way street. And sometimes I think my students teach me more than I teach them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're very good teachers. And you've been a fifth grade teacher since you began. You went, you you were born in, in Los Angeles, and then you went to school at UCLA. I did. And then now you teach at Hobart Boulevard Elementary School, which is in downtown, is central. I teach at Hobart Elementary School, and it's not always easy to teach there. It's a school where 92% of the kids are below the poverty level. Only 92%. Yeah, everybody's on free breakfast and lunch. Uh, It's a poor community, and it's a rough community. And the sadder statistic is that only 32% of the children at the school even finish high school. But my students finish college. They finish. And And how do you know that, Rafe? Is it something where... They stay in touch with me. uh, I'm the world's luckiest teacher. If you ever go, for example, to the Hobart Shakespearean website... HobartShakespeareans.org, and people say, hey, Rafe, it's a great website, except I had nothing to do with it. It's two of my former students who were engineers from Berkeley. The Hobart Shakespearean Foundation was created by one of my kids who wound up going to Yale Law School, and now he's a law professor at Marquette University. So I have this army of former students, and part of my message is I meet so many great young teachers, T, and they're discouraged. They go in for a year or two, and it's tough. And I try to say to them, you know, I'm a real ordinary guy. There's nothing special about me. But I stuck with it. I've tried to learn from my mistakes, work with other people, grow as a teacher. And now I'm reaping the benefits. But it's taken over a quarter of a century. But it's been a wonderful 28 years, and I'm still at it. How did you know that you wanted to be a teacher, Rafe? What, what <laughs> like, sparked that initial... I, I wish I could tell you that there was a glorious plan. The truth is, T... When I was about 13 years old, there was this really cute girl that I wanted to date, and I needed about 50 bucks in my pocket because I wanted to take her out a few times. Her name was Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Yeah, boy, she was hot. (laughs) You're listening. She was great. And I got a job at a summer camp uh, as a as a helper, like mixing paints and you know. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this happened, but if I got on the bus, even when I was 13, and the kids were all screaming and people were trying to quiet them down, and I would just say, "Hey, everybody, listen up." 
and the whole place would go quiet. I don't know why that happens, but I just found out You're that I You're a student really, whisperer. <laughs> I don't know. I, they just really responded. And I was raised in a family which said, whatever you choose to do in your life, help your community. If you're, if you're a lawyer, then spend a night a week doing pro bono work for the poor. If you're a doctor, work at the free clinic once a week. Give back to your community. And I thought teaching is a great way to help society be better. So I went to UCLA, uh, became a teacher. I hoped to become a kindergarten teacher, actually, because I love reading, and I really wanted to turn kids on to reading. But because of the discipline problems at Hobart, they put me in the upper grades as a male teacher. And for the last, like, 25 years, I've been a fifth-grade teacher there, and it's been a wonderful journey. And when, when you're getting—that that is that is great to— to hear, Rafe, that um, when, no master plan. Sorry. <laughs> when, um, yeah, no, that's okay because that's how life is in a lot it of ways, really isn't is. it? It really <laughs> I is. I mean, not that uh, you want to have like ideas of what you value and 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 maybe goals, but it really is about living in the moment and, and understanding the time. That's and right. The gift of time, which is in your book as well. It, it is in the book, and one of the things that I've learned in my journey as a teacher that I've tried to pass on to parents and teachers is, you know, in the Hollywood movie version, uh, the teacher always wins and I always do everything right and I knew from the start. The truth is, and every veteran teacher will tell you this, when I see the kids from 25 years ago, my first words are usually, I'm sorry, <laughs> I start apologizing. <laughs> I was terrible. Um, and, and what happens is when you watch those Hollywood movies and the teacher saves everybody and everybody passes the test, it actually discourages young teachers. It doesn't inspire them because they go home and cry. I know I did because that's not you. And I think the reason young teachers, I have a thousand visitors a year to my classroom from all over the world is because I do still fail all the time because this is a really hard job. And what I'm really trying to do is to inspire kids to be honorable and decent in a world that often isn't honorable and decent. So you're not just teaching reading or, or getting some math skills up to par for a test. That's Your mission what, is different. Lighting their fires, I'm trying to change the conversation. The mission has to be different. Here's a really frightening statistic, T. It was just released that this year's freshman college class across the country, these are kids who have made it. They've made it to college. These are the good students. Only 24% of them are going to finish college. 76% of these kids who've been successful their whole life are not going to finish college. And well, I am is suggesting... Is that new? Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, it just came out. I'm suggesting the reason is, yes, they can pass tests and write papers. Great. But college is so much more than that. And the skills that I'm discussing about in my books, things about how to make decisions, how to give back, how to work with other people, how to focus, are things that have been lost now. We are so busy preparing the kids for these ridiculous tests and convincing ourselves that if you have 85, you're better than a kid with 80. That's absurd. I give my kids tests. I want the kids to do well on tests. I understand that. But that's the beginning of their education, not the end of it. And if I had President Obama's ear, I would try to explain to him this race to the top is absurd. It's not a race. This is a long journey of teaching children to take ownership of their learning, to love to be learners, not for the test or not because they want to go to the University of Michigan, but the learning is the reward in itself. That's what this book is about. Yes, and I love that you say this and that you're 
you're talking about doing this at the fifth grade level, or if you were in kindergarten, Rafe, it seems that then you would be doing it at that level. Absolutely. It has to be a part of the conversation constantly. Because I often think that that's when they're coming to college, that's part of their transformative moments is coming here and understanding that now they are actually, they they need to be, if they haven't been before, the captain of their own knowledge, like the way to to go forward in it. They have to want it. Absolutely. And and, um, there are too many people now where the teacher thinks you're the center of the universe. Uh, people love, they always tease me because on the cover of Lighting Their Fires, my picture isn't on the cover. Usually they have, you know, the iconic teacher, you know, the <laughs> Superman on the cover. Right, instead, backlit. Right, backlit, you know, with, with the hair blown. And I demanded, and Penguin, thank, thank you, Penguin, only put the kids on the cover because it's not my story, it's their story. And it has to be their story. And I often look right at the kids, and when they ask me, they'll do an art project, and they'll say, Rafe, what do you think? And I laugh, and what do I think? It doesn't matter what, what I do think. You what think? do you think? It's your art project. I mean, I'm glad you want my opinion, but it's really not very important to this conversation. Right. It's all about them, and if the class is going badly, I put it on them. And if the class is going well, they get all the credit. And that's the way I think education should be. Do you have any idea about that 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 moment going going way back to the the moment on the school bus at summer camp um, where the kids actually listened to you even though it it sounds like you weren't it's not like you were the one that could yell the loudest to get no. draw people's attention or what is that I mean is that some sort of quality that then you are also able to see in others? Or is it just a magic, a Rafe magic? I have no magic. I'm the most ordinary guy in the world. But there is something I realized years later, which was, and this happens to young teachers all the time, and I, I hope parents are listening to this. The reason kids listen to me is I'm very open about my passions. And if the kids are interested, I pass my passions on to them. I love rock and roll, baseball, and Shakespeare. And they're all integral parts of my classroom even though they're not part of the LAUSD's curriculum. <laughs> and because I love those things, the kids pick up on that enthusiasm, and they grow to love them too. Parents, they have passions, and they should be sharing those passions with their children, whether it's gardening or a certain kind of music or a book they love. One suggestion I have, since we're talking about books, is many good parents read with their children when they're little. But once the kids start school, they stop reading with them. They think, well, the school's doing that. T, the fact of the matter is the kids are often bored in school because they're reading boring materials that are scripted by the Board of Education. My four children read with me through high school. We read all the time together. What sort of books were you? Because I know you make some suggestions in the book. Yeah, I mean, what I do in Lighting Their Fires is that there are certain qualities that I'm hoping the children have. For example, there's a whole section on humility which I think is a wonderful quality for a kid to have, especially in this chest-thumping society. I mean, we, we recently had an hour television show where a basketball player had to announce where he was going to play. And I'm thinking, geez, Louise, I mean, this guy's not curing cancer or something. It's ridiculous, It is isn't ridiculous. It? It's sad. But, 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 but a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old isn't going to know that. No. They have to have us say, you know what? That's ridiculous. Let's read a book together. And when we read To Kill a Mockingbird which is one of my favorite books to read with young people, even Atticus Finch's children don't know how great he is. They don't know that he's the best shot in the county. They don't know how brave he is. They learn how brave he is. This is the conversation I have with children all the time through great literature, whether it's younger children where you're reading Charlotte's Web or high school students where I'm reading Malcolm X. 
these books stimulate a conversation that parents and children should be having all the time, and mine do. And it's also, I think it's interesting because you use film with your students and I think then with your, your children when you are reading Malcolm X, yeah, well, your own course, children. You know, I guess how to differentiate. Cause well, I, the funny thing is I'm out in Hollywood. And again, again, this culture we're growing up in, if children look at a newspaper in Los Angeles on Monday morning and they talk about the weekend films, the only thing that's discussed is how much money they made. No one discusses if they're good, if they're bad. So because I'm older, we have a film club in my class, and I suggest to parents, great films you can watch as a family and then have a discussion. Have a weekly night where you watch a great film together. And today with DVDs, it's easy to do. That's true. It's... If you ask my 10-year-olds, what's your favorite film, you'll be shocked that some of them might say Casablanca or Citizen Kane or The Wizard of Oz. So how are you building that into the curriculum then, like for a moment? Like, for example, Casablanca. Well, for example, if you ask one of my children, why are we watching this? It's not just to watch the film. The children will say, well, we're working on our listening skills. A lot of people don't know how to listen. We're really going to pay attention because when this film is over, we're going to write about it. And here's a great point, T. If you ask most children in school, why are you doing something? If you interrupt an activity and say, how come you're doing that math problem? Why are you watching this film? Most kids will say, because I have to, or the teacher told me, or there's a test coming up. If you ask my students, why are you doing something? They will answer, if I know this skill, my life just got better. That's the relevance but, so, but have you said that to them? All the right? time. I teach them this. They don't know what they're, they're just little kids. They don't know anything. This is why I get paid the big money tea. I have to have this conversation with them. But when my students watch a film, they will tell you, if I listen well, if I can write well, I'm going to be doing that not just this year in race class. A person who writes well is going to do better in life. And that's why we're here with Rafe. Rafe Esquith, you are an angel. Your latest book out in paperback with Penguin Books, Lighting Their Fires, How Parents and Teachers Can Raise Extraordinary Kids in a Mixed Up, Muddled Up, Shook Up World. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, so happy to have Rafe Esquith here. Rafe, thanks for being here. This is fun. <laughs> it's all you. You're making it fun, Rafe. Thank you. Which I think must be the case with um, Room 56, your fifth grade classroom. Is it literally Room 56? It is Room 56, and it is a fun place. One of my uh, former students described it as her safe haven. And I thought that was a very nice thing for a kid to say about a classroom where... So many times kids are afraid in school, and it doesn't work. We've all, all your listeners remember when they were afraid in school, and you can't learn when you're afraid. It doesn't mean I'm not a tough teacher. I have very high expectations. But I also want parents to know some of the punishments we're doing and some of the fear we're putting in children doesn't help them at all. It just hurts them. So my classroom is a fun place. And it, in a way, it teaches them how to, to punish others, too, instead of... It really does. I mean, if, if I'm screaming at a child to be nice, that's kind of a mixed message, isn't it, right? <laughs> so the first rule of parenting is we've got to be the people we want them to be. Um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful moment in the book where... Um, it's, the book is at a Dodger-Cardinal game, and I, I thought that setting the book at a baseball game is so American in that the kids are going to see everything that's wonderful, but also that's horrible our world growing up. And the great Albert Pujols of the Cardinals hits a home run against the Dodgers. And people behind us start screaming F-bombs at him and cursing him. And Instead I, of appreciating the beauty but, of... But also, that, I turned or, around and I said, hey, guys, I got a group of little kids here. Can we tone down the language a little bit? Um, and they started hurling F-bombs at me. They started yelling at me. And I almost started laughing. And I turned around and the kids saw that I didn't yell back. Right. It's not, you know, some people behave that way. That's fine. It's not the way I behave. And someone has to stop the madness. So I just turned around. And the funniest part of the story, it turned out later on, two of them were teachers and wanted to meet me later on because they recognized me. And they actually turned out to be, you know, reasonably nice guys. But they're part of this culture that doesn't think before they scream and yell. I want my kids to think a little bit more about their behavior. And it seems it's it's not, it's, they're not thinking, but also because we're not held accountable for thinking because it's ex somehow it it's seems accepted. pushed so that it's accepted. You know, yeah. I, I will tell the kids, people will say, hey, you're at the ball game. You've paid your money. You get to do anything you want. I'm sorry. I don't agree with that. Uh, maybe I'm from the Stone Age. I don't think you get to <laughs> curse people. I, I really don't. Um, I don't think you get to throw beach balls around at the other team and around. I'm there to watch the ball game. And I love beach balls. I use them at the beach all the time. I just don't know if they belong at a ball game. Um, if your listeners ever even watch a Tigers game and you watch it on television, you'll notice that half the people in the background aren't watching the game. They're on their cell phones or they're texting someone. And I think this is hurting our children. Um, one of the suggestions I have in the book is all of my children play music. People are astonished that my kids can really pay attention for long periods of time where they'll do a two-hour Shakespeare rehearsal. And uh, we had a reporter there once ask the kid, don't you ever go to the bathroom? And the kid whispered back, I might miss something. They were like so into the rehearsal and they really focus. It's because, T, they play music. Um, one of my suggestions to parents is that when a, when a child plays music, 
she's learning about something that has nothing to do with music. She's learning about practice, responsibility, listening to other people because they're making music too and you have to play together. They're learning about making mistakes and then correcting those mistakes and getting better. That's a pretty good set of skills for a kid to carry for the rest of their life. And another language, the the music lang- the language of music. Uh, well, with... I, I'm so thrilled that you pointed out language because one of the things that shocks people when they see my students is my students also know sign language. They can sign. That's great. And when we do rock and roll, we also sign the rock and roll. And there's an important lesson here. I'm not that good a teacher, but we had a wonderful teacher at my school, and her name is Mrs. Hayden. And one day, years ago, I saw her signing with her little third graders. And I said, Miss Hayden, that's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well, it turned out that she was an expert. She used to work with deaf children. And I said, well, can you teach my children to sign? And she loves teaching my children to sign because people that have skills love to share them. So I ask for help all the time. And the thing that's funny is now people come up and they see my kids signing and they go, Rafe, you're amazing. And I go, yeah, I guess. I asked Mrs. Hayden to teach my class. I guess that makes me amazing. But Are you also picking it up too? Of course. So you've got some sign. I I do. And the thing that's really fun, and this is just the perks you get of this, when my students are in a place like Washington, D.C. and we're riding the Metro, and we don't want to disturb people, they sign each other on the train because that way they're not disturbing people. And then it's hilarious because someone will come up to me and go, oh, that's sweet, Rafe, you work with the deaf. And I go, no, they're just signing. (laughs) But that idea of learning other languages, be it music or sign language, is, you know, in, in America, we usually only speak one language, but around the world, people speak seven languages. And I want my students to be able to communicate in many ways. It's a good skill for a lifetime. That's, I think the key point of lighting their fires is we can't just teach for this year. We're trying to equip our kids with values and, and skills that they'll have for the rest of their lives. One of the, uh, the skills that I talk about in the book that is very important in my classroom is the skill of delayed gratification. In this instant coffee society, um, I will have students who come to me And they'll say, I want to play the guitar in in your band, Rafe. And I'll say, well, sure. Um, Can you come in at recess? And can you come during the summer? Well, no, I don't want to do that. But you said you wanted to play the guitar. And they're not willing to pay the price. And that's okay. It's my job to give them the opportunity. But the children who are willing to delay their gratification, to understand that if I work real hard now, a year from now or two years from now, I'm going to be a great musician. Very important lesson for the kids to learn. And I don't know if your listeners or, or if UT know about two marshmallows, but there's the famous tell, two marshmallows. Tell mar- us that story. You know, that the was famous, a, a nice I part. always tell the children that. Um, the famous two marshmallow study at Stanford University. <laughs> in 1970, a professor there took a group of four-year-old children and brought them one by one into a room with a giant marshmallow and told the child, here's a marshmallow. Oh, you know what, son? I have to leave for a minute. Uh, wait here for me. I'll be back. I left something out of the office. And you can eat the marshmallow, but if you wait till I come back and don't eat it, I'll give you two marshmallows. And then they left and they watched the kids through a one-way window. And of course, a lot of the four-year-olds gobbled down the marshmallow like a lot of four-year-olds would. But some of them waited. Some of them waited up to 20 minutes. They were four until he came back with the second marshmallow. And then they tracked those kids for 18 years. And every kid who waited for two marshmallows did better in school and had longer-lasting relationships. Because even at the age of four, they understood the concept of delayed gratification. 
It's not the kind of thing you can put down on a multiple choice test. It's not the kind of thing you can test for no child left behind. But I would suggest to you that's a more important skill than, you know, what's the answer to number 23? And that's the conversation we have in Room 56. All the time. All, All the, the time. time. We it's are, just naturally. We are, and you're seeing the moments. That's what it see, seems like. You you see moments to step into to talk about a, a, a lesson. And, absolutely. Uh, and, and one of the things that I love about the book that I've written is that nothing magical happens during this evening. We spend a night at a baseball game. The kids see a lot of wonderful things. They see a lot of things that aren't so wonderful. We talk about them. But at the end of the evening, when I drive the kids home, nobody gets out of their car and says, hey, Rafe, thanks. You've saved my life. (laughs) I was ignorant before, but now after an evening with you, I'm ready. It doesn't work that way. And then a high five. (laughs) that's, that's, That's the Hollywood movie version. Right, right. But what happens is slowly, surely, over the years, I can't tell you the meal I get. Um, Here's a wonderful thing for anybody out there who thinks, I'm not making a difference. You don't know that because I just got a letter from a kid I hadn't heard from in 22 years. And he had a terrible childhood. Single parent, ran around the country with food stamps. Today, he's a lawyer for the United States Circuit Court of Appeals. And he wrote to me and said, it's all because of what I learned in the fifth grade with you. Who knew? So for the people that are working so hard with children, both parents and children, who think they're not listening to you, I'm sorry to disagree with you. You don't know that. If you're pitching these good values and these important lessons, sometimes they kick in many years later. So you're saying the student that has just written you 22 years later, Rafe, was yeah. not one of the students that was actually like a star student Absolutely at the moment. Not. I thought I had no effect on him at all. And that's a very important point to make. But I was kind to him and I did talk to him. You know, there are students who stay in touch with me. They're like my own children. This boy, no. We were not close. He didn't, you know, we didn't join hands and sing Kumbaya together. It wasn't like that. But he was listening. It just took him a long time to process the information. And one of the sad things about education today is we think all the kids have to be the same. We're standardizing everything. They're not all the same. There are kids who run faster. There are kids who calculate better. There are kids who read better. You know what? That's okay. Um, I don't compare a child to another child. I always have the child compare himself to himself. If I'm a better reader than I was yesterday, that's progress. Yes, there's always going to be somebody better than you. So what? Welcome to the human race. <laughs> but we don't have, you're laughing. We don't have this conversation with children. Right. No. no well, no, it's quite the, actually, the message is quite the opposite. It, it really <laughs> is. So what we're, yeah. I, well, a, a, a couple of things, um, Rafe, because you mentioned, um, like with Obama's uh, a plan, but I would say that it seems like the the way the path that our country has taken on education has been sort of souring for the like more than a decade. Like that's when I've been aware of it. It really has. And so it's not this administration. It's it's. Oh, actually... that's absolutely true. I was I was excited, and you know, listen, President Obama, who I voted for and loved dearly, he's got an impossible job. I know that, but I was hoping that he would be the courageous president to say it has to be more than just test scores. Um, In his race to the top now, they're giving funds out simply by which schools have the higher test scores. It can't be that simple. And I'll give you an example. I had a boy last year named Jason, tough kid to work with. I mean, he was tough. He had missed over 50 days of school in the fourth grade. Um, His mother had been arrested many times. This was a tough kid who had beaten up a lot of kids, very violent. Well, it seems like he'd had to be tough to survive. Absolutely. And I mean, not an easy kid to work with, not an easy kid to like. In the year that he had with me, we became good pals, and he never missed a day of school. 
He learned to function on the playground. Even the kids said, wow, Jason's nice to be around. We like being around Jason. But here's the thing, T. His test scores are still way behind. Now, according to Race to the Top, I failed as a teacher. And what <laughs> I'm saying is crazy. if we're going to – I want schools to be accountable. I don't mind being held accountable. But if you're going to measure what I'm doing, if you're going to measure what a parent's doing, you're going to have to make it larger than just look at the test scores. Right. You might like this interview with me. You might not. But you're not basing it on my SAT score, for goodness sake. And yet we're telling young people – you know, if you go to Princeton, you are more successful than somebody who goes to Michigan State. Well, how do they know that? We've got to shift the conversation away from those simplistic platitudes. And, and as you bring up, for example, with Jason's backstory, you don't know which, where the child or the is starting from to become That's, a statistic, absolutely. right? And so, and some of the schools that then are suffering the most are in neighborhoods that are most challenged, and then they're closing a community resource, That's aren't they? Ab- if they, these they schools really don't are. get funding. And, and listen, I'm the first person to tell you public schools are a mess. I know that. Are there teachers in public schools who shouldn't be teaching? Absolutely. Is it too hard to fire bad teachers? It is. I teach with some some teachers who should not be teaching. But I also teach with amazing, heroic people who go in every day and are making kids' lives better. And they are not being given the credit they deserve because their whole career is based on a test score, and it shouldn't be that simple. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back. You're listening to Living Writers today. We're lucky to have Rafe Esquith here. His book, Lighting Their Fires, um, now out in paperback with Penguin. We'll be back. a shout out to engineer Brian who put on John Fogarty for the folks who didn't hear this. Fogarty's center field was just inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. So great choice of songs. And and, and great engineering as always. Thank you, Brian. Brian Delaney. <laughs> and also, um, thanks to Michelle for reminding us um, to, to kind of take a moment from our conversation because tonight, Rafe uh, Esquith, he is appearing at Borders in Birmingham on Woodward. So that'll be tonight at 7 o'clock. Um, I was hoping you were going to be downtown Ann Arbor, but I guess we're going to have to... Um, I'll have to come back for that. Yes, I hope so. Okay. Do, do. And and thanks to Michelle for uh, reminding us. We'll have to we'll keep mentioning that so that you can 
People can start driving to Birmingham. Thank you, folks. <laughs> um, so, so with this, uh, since we've got the great baseball song that we just heard from Fogarty, um, was the the night out at the Dodgers game a natural frame for the story, Rafe? Did you know that going into this, you were mulling over how you were going to frame this book and it just seemed like the innings would be a natural progression and I do love baseball and I do take kids to baseball games all the time and I thought it was a perfect setting in that during this evening I notice everything that's wrong with kids growing up and I'll give you an example um, if you go to a baseball game now in any stadium the instant an inning is over we are assaulted with the big screen of you have to watch this movie or you know or advertising or like a game where or is a game that everybody's shell playing or... where's the peanut shell <laughs> whatever happened to turning to your kid and saying hey who's up next for the tigers do you think they're going to bring in a relief pitcher no one talks about the game anymore is it any wonder why people think kids don't pay attention anymore we don't teach them to pay attention one of the things i do at baseball games and i really encourage parents to do this is to teach their children to score a baseball game, which my kids do religiously. It's a great way to teach record keeping. It's a great way to apply mathematics where they start computing batting averages and earned run averages, where the kids start to see that math isn't simply something in a textbook. It's something that baseball teams use every day when they decide how they're going to pitch to somebody, why the outfield shifts to the right, because they know that a particular hitter hits it in this direction 37% of the time. They have to understand that the math they're learning isn't for a test. They use it in real life every day. It's great for the kids to score and to keep a record. It's much better than buying a souvenir cap because it's, they're invested in the game. And my students pay attention religiously to games. Some of them even start scoring at home when they listen to a game on the radio where you can print out sheets for free off the internet. You don't have to buy a scorebook or anything. It's free. I mean, anybody can do this. And what's hilarious is when my kids score, people start gathering around, hey, can we do this too? They're interested, but it's a lost art. But it's the kind of thing where you wouldn't think a baseball game is a place to teach someone something. But it really, I'm trying to say in this book, whether you're at the supermarket or, a, or in the car or at a movie theater or a baseball game, you can always be teaching the children things. Well, because in this this book, too, I don't think it's too giving too much away, but one of the teaching moments at the, the game was when you were um, teaching about the relativity time of time. So, so basically looking at scores that were flashing up from other time zones of games that were going on concurrently. It was a wonderful moment. I am obsessed with time. Um, I read Malcolm X with the kids every year, and Malcolm X wrote that he never thought... So in your fifth grade class, yeah, not just with when your kids were in high school. No, even my fifth graders read Malcolm. Great. And one of the things Malcolm wrote was he, he never thought I was 10 miles from somewhere. He would say I'm 20 minutes away. He always wore his watch. I think our kids spend time badly. Uh, the average child in America is now in front of a television seven hours a day. And I don't think there's any parent out there who thinks that's a good idea. What the, the problem is, and I wrote about this in this book, I know great parents and teachers trying to solve the problem. There's one teacher I wrote about who actually went to a child's house and took the television out of the house. But I don't think that's teaching. That's bullying. I think the great parent and the great teacher teaches the child to turn off his own television. T, you mentioned time. Because my class talks about time all the time, You, the kid at the game noticed, wait a minute, why is this... 
I'm looking at scores on the board, and they're in the fourth inning, they're in the eighth inning, and I tried to remember, well, they're playing in New York or they're playing in Kansas City. They all started at the same time, but it's different time zones. When the children start to develop a concept of time, I'm sure anybody listening will tell you that most children will say, I don't want to watch an old movie. I only want to watch a new movie. But because we talk about time, my students respect time. They start to realize maybe, maybe people of another time have something to say to me. And that's a very important skill to teach children, to get up in the morning and say, how do I want to spend my time? You know, I want to become a better guitarist today. I want to see my friend today. I want to play baseball today. I don't really have the time to sit down for seven hours in front of a television. I have other things that I want to do with my time. We just got back from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is a wonderful place to take kids. In Asheville. In Ashland, in Ashland, Oregon. Or Ashland. Ashland, Oregon. Great festival. 25 kids there with just my wife and myself. These are 11, 12, and 13-year-olds. And they're all in hotel rooms. Nobody watches television. And there's no rule. They can watch television if they want. They're busy. They're seeing theater. They're going swimming. They're going to the park to play baseball or frisbee. They're, they're um, riding bicycles. Who's got time? But they think about those skills. How do I spend my day? And good parents who only plan the day for their children and script it out, what are the kids going to do when you're not around? We have to have the kids be independent enough. We have to let them make some mistakes sometimes. We have to let them fail. But then talk about their mistakes. Talk about their failures. And that's why my children spend their time wisely and why they do well. It has to be a daily discussion. And so that's what you're doing. You're talking about this between and within lessons during each day, Monday through Friday. And even at the baseball game, Dodger fans are notorious for showing up in the third and the fourth inning and then leaving in the seventh inning. And you see the kids all shooting me glances like they've missed missed the first three innings. And those fans would say, yeah, but we know the score. And my students might understand now, you might know the score, but you've missed the game. Yes, we all know that Hamlet dies at the end of the play, but shouldn't we watch the first five acts leading up to understanding? I think it's not, people think my kids are somehow brilliant. They're not, but they have a deeper level of understanding because of their focus and the way they spend their time. So with your students in, in fifth grade, Rafe, when they come to you, when they come into room 56, is there some sort of lottery? Is it like random? How, how do they come to your classroom? And just as a follow-up, um, and can they read? And what are their, what's their skill level when you... That's a great question. Well, two parts. First of all, there's no lottery. And my beloved principal has described me as her worst nightmare because every parent in the school... And parents, even from foreign countries, call Hobart to try and get their kids into this classroom. Um, Ian McKellen, the great actor, has described it as the saddest place he knows. He says he cries when he comes. It's happiness, but a regret that not every child is getting this education. What I've done to solve the problem is this. The fourth graders of my school are split up at random by gender, race, test scores, behavioral problems. I get a mix of kids. I get kids ready to cure cancer, and I have kids that can't count to 10. I have every kind of kid there. To give all the children these opportunities I'm talking about, I have a Shakespeare program that I do after school, where kids are allowed to come from other classes. I have a math program before school, and the rock band that we do is recess and lunch. So 
there are clips of my class where you'll see 100 kids in the classroom because I don't want an elitist program. Everybody's welcome to the party. And there are kids who don't want to come to that party because they don't want to do the work. That's okay with me. As long as I've opened the door, they still have to walk through. You were asking about the beginning of the year. It's great that you asked that because it's summertime here. And three weeks ago, 24 fifth graders-to-be volunteered to come into school because they want to be in our Shakespeare play next year. So we started working on Midsummer Night's Dream. For the people who think, gee, Rafe gets all the geniuses, the kids filled out a form for me. This is just three weeks ago. Out of 24 kids, 10 years old, only four knew their address and phone number. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? Some of them had lived there their whole lives and didn't know their address and phone number. Because that also seems sort of dangerous as well. You would but, think. Yeah. <laughs> you would think. And we, I mean, all the teachers out there nodding their heads know sometimes we're getting kids now where we just shake our heads and go, my goodness, you know, how, how is that possible? But the good news, in this group, there are great kids. No one's shown them the way yet. I look at them and I honestly, I'm not a bleeding heart. But I honestly believe the cure for cancer could be right in front of me. The next Shakespeare could be right there, as long as I have that daily conversation with them and show them what's possible. It's astonishing what kids can accomplish if we create an environment where they're not scared, where they know they can make mistakes, where they know that their teacher or parent has very high expectations for them. I mean, I have, um, there's a story I love to tell, and I can't use the exact word on the air, because I never yell at children, I never humiliate children. And Time Magazine was in my room years ago, and she asked a kid a question quietly in the back of the room, and she started laughing hysterically. And I went over to the reporter, and I said, what's so funny? And she said, well, I asked this kid, I noticed Rafe doesn't yell, and he's very nice, but you guys all listen, and you don't, you don't you know, mess around. And the kid said, well, you got to understand, ma'am, Rafe doesn't yell, but everybody in this class knows don't mess with Rafe. And he didn't use the word mess, okay? And she was laughing because I think parents do need to be firm, not in a humiliating, screaming way, but we're the adults and we have to tell the kids, this is what we expect of you. And there might be people who don't pay attention to baseball games, but you're my son and in our family, we pay attention. So, so that, and that's, that's a great, that's a great story. And, and, um, and the and the attention so so critical. It seems like you're able to funnel your attention to these kids for just this incredible amount of time. I, I don't know. Do you have like coffee infusions or? <laughs> but you know, you're just getting re-energized by them. Is that I'm the absolutely way it works? re-energized by the children? And I actually believe what I'm doing. And there's one more key. Most young teachers, and it's so sad. All they're doing all day long is following the script the district gave them, and it robs them of their passion. What I'm trying to tell young teachers to do, don't forget who you are. If you're a great cook, you got to find a way to cook with your kids. Synthesize the state standards, make it a math lesson. If you love 15th century Italian poetry, get it into your classroom somehow. That's what infuses me. I love baseball. I love Shakespeare. To me, it's not work. I, I'm amazed that I get paid to teach him. Because I could talk Shakespeare forever. He's my hero. So, so um, many people's hero because he's lasting, right? That he's, he stands the test of time. That's the other thing that you know that I try and explain to the kids. You know, it's great that you like Justin Bieber. Is anybody going to be listening to his music in ten years? Probably not. And I want the kids to understand that there's a reason people still listen to Mozart. He was pretty talented. And and before we go to break, uh, Rafe. 
um, fifth graders, they're coming into your class. They don't know their their address. So how some of these kids probably can't read at a level where they can take on um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. That's right. How are you closing that gap? Here's the way the thing is. They can read at that level. They just haven't learned how yet. It's been my experience that very, very few kids come to me who are just stupid, who just can't read. Well, of course. They don't read well because they're not in a home where reading's going on. They've been reading incredibly boring texts in school and have never been motivated. The secret is I read with the children. The days of giving a kid John Steinbeck and saying, hey, this is a great book, Johnny, go home and read it. That's over. So you're reading aloud in class? I read aloud with them, every page, every word for hours a day. And my better readers volunteer to read some of it out loud. And slowly, the ones who are behind realize, you know what? I can read a paragraph of this. I'll try. And I know that when I stumble on a word, no one's going to laugh at me. It's amazing how fast they catch up. And that is the key that I'm begging parents, read great books with your kids. People think I'm a good teacher. I'm not that good a teacher. John Steinbeck's a great writer. When we read of Mice and Men and George has to kill Lenny and the class weeps, that's what reading is supposed to be. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to hear more from Rafe Esquith, his latest in paperback, Lighting Their Fires. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers today. Rafe Esquith here in the studio um, tonight. Rafe, you'll be um, hoofing it over to Borders in Birmingham on Woodward, seven o'clock. Um, you know, you had asked me to read a part of the book, and I, I wanted to show the listeners if you can put yourself in the in the position of a child today. There are even people, well-meaning people, who are leading them in the wrong direction, and. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were going to Washington, D.C. We were going through security to get on a plane. And here's a little portion of the book. Before getting on the plane to Washington, the kids had a fascinating experience. After surprising the ticket agents with their organization and preparedness at getting their bags tagged and put through the x-ray machine, the children queued up to go through security. 
Upon seeing a long line of youngsters, a TSA worker spoke up. His questions were a bit irritating to the children, but understandable when one considers the endless rush of disorganized and rude school groups with which this gentleman was used to dealing with. So the TSA guy said, quiet down. Put your backpacks and shoes on the belt. Take your cell phones and Game Boys out of your pockets. And the kids went, well, um, we don't have Game Boys. And the guy said, ah, don't play with me. We'll find them. And the kids said, no, we, sir, we really don't have them. And they go through the security scanner, and the TSI guy is checking their boarding passes. You're going to Washington, D.C.? And the kids say, yeah, we are. And the TSA guy, well, that's a long flight. Too bad your teacher doesn't let you bring Game Boys. And the kids say, well, we can bring them if we want to. We just don't. And the TSA guy goes, well, I don't get it. And the kids say, well, have a nice day, sir. And again, here's an adult basically encouraging them. Where And then when they got on the plane, even the stewardess wanted to give them DVD players. And the kids said, well, we have books with us. And she had never seen kids read on a plane for five hours before. And what's wrong with that? That's what I do on a plane. And a lot of people have just forgotten the joy of reading. There's so many great books out there if we show the kids. When we're on the road, we read a book together. We do like a group read. So, uh, oh, so what were you reading in D.C.? Uh, Can you remember yeah, that Yeah, I do. We were reading The Secret Life of Bees. And great book. And then when we were in Ashland recently, we read an incredible new book, The Book Thief. Uh, unbelievable book. And the only Yes, t- by Hannah Tinty. Um, this is, wait, Book oh. Thief is uh, Marcus. And oh, uh, Marcus Lucas. Okay. And the thing that was hysterical was that the only oh, I was thinking, sorry, The Good Thief. Right, that's sorry, right. Sorry. But the thing that's funny about all these great books the kids read is the only time they get mad at me is when I say, we got to put it down, we got somewhere to go. Really? Yeah, because once you're hooked on reading, there's nothing better. Um, the problem is we're putting the wrong books in their hands. Uh, the joke in my class is I've taken all the books that have been banned and we read them because they're all the best books. <laughs> so we read Huck Finn and we read Catcher in the Rye and we read Anne Frank. Um, because there are actually libraries that don't want children to read these books, which makes them want to read them all the more. Exactly. So good, good, good instinct to go towards that, Rafe. Absolutely. And and then so as you're reading these, then are you pausing at different moments in the book or maybe at chapter breaks to actually then talk about the ideas? All that are... through th- and there's two. I'm glad you asked that question. Here's the flip side horror story. I just spoke with a a former student of mine, a wonderful guy who's uh, in the 10th grade in high school, and he's in an honors class, English class, supposedly with the top students in the school, and their teacher had them read To Kill a Mockingbird, which he had read with me before, and we loved the book, but they didn't read it in class. He told the 40 kids, go home and read the book, and every three or four days, there'll be a test. Well, first of all, Jason told me, uh, this is a different Jason that I spoke with before, but he told me two kids actually read the book. The other 38 kids, and these are honor students, they went online, they looked at the notes, they cut and pasted essays. When they got back to class, the tests were all, what are the names of Atticus's children? You know, is it Scout and Jem, or is it, you know, Beavis and Butthead? No thinking, multiple multiple choice. choice, And the, the problem with this is the real question that you were talking about when you discuss with children. Yes, you want to know the character and what color sweater he was wearing. But the real question to ask children is, what does this book say to you? I always tell children every great book is about you. What do you learn from George and Lenny? What do you learn from Atticus Finch? What do you learn from Holden Caulfield? Do you think he's making good decisions? Have you ever felt like Holden before? 
right about when you've connected. Um, years ago, we were reading The Raisin in the Sun, and I had a great kid named Luis who was crying in the middle of it. And I said, Luis, why are you crying? And he said, I'm crying because this is my life. That's what a book is supposed to be. And we've lost that. Somewhere in the schools, reading became a subject. And I don't understand that. Reading is something that educated people do every day of their life that connects them with the world. just human beings, because yes. it makes us more yes. of a human being. Right. And, I mean, it, it helps yeah. connect us with the world. Oh. You know, I tell the kids, I can't even go to the bathroom in the morning before I pick up a newspaper to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps take us to other places, to hear different points of view. Absolutely. Um, and it's amazing that when kids go into a candy store, of course they're going to buy candy. They've had good experiences with candy. Kids don't go into a bookstore because they've often had bad experiences with books because they've, they've read boring books or they've done horrible assignments with books. Um, at my school right now, this is the new thinking and reading. And you're going to think I'm making this up. The average kid in my school on a Monday morning comes in and with the scripted reading program, with his class, reads an incredibly boring story for three hours out loud as a choral read. No discussion, just the choral read. And then, (laughs) it gets better, Tuesday morning, they do the same story again. Wednesday morning, they do the same story again. Thursday and Friday are worksheets, and then they start again on Monday. And we want to know why kids aren't reading. Wait, they have to read it aloud, Rafe, just in unison? The same story three times for nine hours. I'm not making this up. This is the script of some of these basal readers. Well, of course What's the a basal kids, re- it's, it's, a- it's basically a, a state book of some stories put together that the authorities have deemed proper for a third grade level or a fourth grade level. And what, what's really happening is the And to read it like a Greek chorus? Yeah. That seems to be it's the ridiculous. best way to absorb it's ri- the and, and the questions ideas? the teacher are asked are all written out and scripted rather than having a real discussion. One of the great, we had a great fight in my class when you're over Malcolm X. It was great where there were kids who couldn't stand him saying this guy robbed people. He hurt people. And other people said, yeah, but look at his upbringing. He had this horrible upbringing. Look what the state did to him. And again, this, these are 10-year-olds yeah, that are having saying, this discussion. And one 10-year-old said, you know what? I've had a tough upbringing, and I'm not robbing anybody, and I'm not going to, you know. And other people go, well, you don't understand. And what was great was nobody was right. It provoked a discussion. That's what I love in reading. And with each other, not just with you. No, not the, just the back and forth with the teacher, tea, but tea, with each other. They don't care about me at all, okay? They barely notice I exist, okay? Uh, I'm just the guy that drives the bus. I don't have a desk in my classroom. I don't stand at the front of my classroom. I usually hide in the back corner um, because it's really the kids who discuss with each other. It's their classroom, and that's why they're so motivated. They realize, you know what? I'm in charge of my life. I decide which way I'm going to go. And if I make the right decisions, I'm going to have an extraordinary life. I can accomplish great things. Anyway, um, you they, know, you they know, do. They, they do. I mean, one, one of the funny stories I tell is years ago, I had some great young teachers in my room watching the kids build rockets. And there was a group of kids um, building the rockets wrong. So some of the young teachers went over to the children and I grabbed an arm and I said, you guys, where are you going? And they said, well, Rafe, look at the kids. They're building their rockets wrong. And I said, yeah, they are. And they said, they're not going to fly. 
And I said, no, they won't. Then they're going to have to figure out why. It's called science, guys. <laughs> and these young teachers, and they were great young teachers, but they wanted to solve all their problems. Mm. It's a mistake. Sometimes kids have to fall down. It's really okay. It's okay to strike out. It really is. Then you go back and you figure out what I do wrong. What am I going to try next time? And a thing that, that I really urge people to t talk to the kids about, that failure is a hugely important part of a learning process. I fail all the time as a teacher, but one of the things I love about teaching is I reach kids today that 15 years ago I didn't reach. I've tried to learn from my mistakes and reflect on my mistakes. And I think- What are all... some of the things that you, you have learned, Rafe? Are you able to articulate oh, them or course. is it something that's- I mean, clearly, distinct? clearly the biggest mistake I made, and any teacher can make this mistake, is the confusion of talent with character, where you have that great kid in your room because he's an amazing guitar player, or an amazing actor, or he's brilliant in math, and you think, wow, that's a great kid. Well, not necessarily. You know, I'm looking for the kid. Um, I have a boy I wrote about in this book named Felix. And Felix was a boy with beautiful long hair, known for his long hair, very talented actor. One day he came back to visit us in the eighth grade. Uh, he came back from middle school and he was bald. And we all started laughing. I said, Felix, what in the world happened? I said, that's, that's quite a fashion statement. And I, you know, I said, would you run out of shampoo? And he said, no. He said, there's a kid in my school with cancer. So I gave her my hair. We're, we're putting hair together for her because she's going through chemotherapy. Now, he's not the best math student or the best writer. But you know what? That's the best kid. That's the kid who I want for my neighbor. That's the kid I want to work with one day. And I didn't recognize that in my first 10 years of teaching. I would have recognized the kid with a higher math score. Now, I want Felix to have a higher math score. But character, for me, trumps the math score every day of the week, and I'm a math major. Do you think that's because when you started, you rolled right out of UCLA, so Absolutely. you were in your 20s, and so what you were able to see or to understand was at a different... And not only and that... is there a way that you can help young yes, teachers that's have why a, they come. Thank you for asking. Yeah, the point is that when you're a young teacher or a parent, you're trying to a 